We're back. Talk Radio 930 WTAD. The Mary Griffith Show brought to you by Refreshment Services Pepsi and Harvest Ridge Coffee. Boy, yesterday when that big Pepsi truck pulled up with that delicious new load of Harvest Ridge Coffee, we were so excited here at the Radio Ranch. You can enjoy Harvest Ridge at home or at your favorite convenience store. Well, Suffice it to say, today is the day I do the least amount of work and have the most amount of fun. And it's also the uh, number one rated Mary Griffith show of the month. The third Friday, whenever Chuck Schultz and Jack Freiberg stop by to talk about some aspect of history in Quincy. And today, it's the flood of 93. Welcome, gentlemen. Good Happy morning. Happy to be here, Mary. First of all, congratulations, new grandpa Chuck Schultz. Elizabeth Johnson Schultz, born on the 13th and doing great, and mom, Becca, and the whole family. Yeah, just thrilled. I am such a fortunate guy. Now, how many grandkids do you have now? I have six. Six for six on the girls. Charles and Jamie have three, and Jake and Becca have three. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's talk about a documentary or something that's come out on a channel called Vice. What a great name. And it's all about Jim Scott, the man who was convicted of breaking the levy deliberately and flooding West Quincy back in 93. So Jack Freiberg, we'll let you start. We'll take it away. That was a pinnacle moment in Quincy's history. And it's one of those moments, as uh, Rodney Hart says in the video, um, that was a local equivalent of uh, where were you on September 11th or where were you when JFK was killed. Um, because for me, I was uh, taking country and western dancing lessons at the casino, which somehow just seems perfect. <laughs> Good grief. I don't know if I'd have really admitted that publicly, Jack. But July 16th, 822 p.m., absolutely. Uh, you could see it happen. It was live on CNN, but you could just look to the west as the... Uh, Tanks exploded at the airco there and got just swept away. Uh, pretty dramatic. Yeah, it was. Uh, Chuck was the mayor at the time. He has different memories. He was not country western line dancing at the time. But uh, you're right. Everybody knows what they were doing the day the West Quincy levee broke. Um, this was also when, when Jim Scott went to trial. I don't know what channel it was on, but Tom Reddington was the prosecuting attorney in Marion County. And he became a star overnight because one of the um, legal channels carried this. And uh, so many, many people got to watch that trial uh, live on television. So let's talk about that aspect of it, the culprit, James well, Scott. Well, remember, Mary, that WGM was live over there. I had done an interview from that levy the night before live, that Thursday night. Shan Weston. And we I, thought we finally, I mean, we knew that was a critical point for sure. And and this guy in the video, this so-called documentary, makes a big deal out, well, it would break anyway. Well, we knew that that was a danger point. And Norman here had told me, you could take the heel of your boot and just start a trickle, and it would be 30 and, yards wide in a minute. And see, I was over there throwing sandbags that day. Right at that spot. Right, you know, Jay? right, right. You know, right at right at that spot or right near there. We some of us that day were a little bit north of there. But the point being is, you use the the heel. I would say you could just take the edge of a hoe, 
and run it across there twice. Of course, that river was so and, great. And, and, you know, because there was no freeboard at all on that levee. I mean, you know, it was, it, it was I don't just, know. Just, just sand and dirt. So. Well, and, well and, and there was bisqueen over the top of it or large plastic sheets over the top of it to try and keep keep it from eroding a little bit. So more. here's WGM Live. Who's the first person that they interview? James Scott. Bob Mel, one of the great detectives in the history of the Quincy Police Department, is watching this live on TV. Wait a minute. Jim Scott is at the site of this catastrophe? And, uh, you know, the ball started rolling. And you well, know, he, he, he was not confessed. Perceived, he was not perceived as someone who was over there to do good. Well, the other thing that was obviously bogus to me was that he said he was alone. And I can tell you... When we were over there, we were in gangs of multiple people, not only to help protect the Debbie, the levee, but also for our own personal safety over there. There's no way anybody was by themselves alone. I mean, it just that just didn't make any sense. So you mentioned uh, Tom Reddington. The judge was Robert Clayton, okay. a great judge and a perfect judge for this, who well understood the implications. A lot of the criticism is... I've been in jail for 30 years. People that have committed murder have gotten out in less than 30 years. And, you know, what they fail to recognize, there's different theories of punishment that go into criminal law. And sometimes it's to send a message of deterrence, and sometimes maybe it's hopeful for rehabilitation, whatever. But there's a theory for restraint. You can't let somebody out if they're going to start another fire start another flood. They can't control that, you know, whatever that disease is. And so you have to protect the rest of society. And, you know, they say, well, you didn't kill anybody. It, it wasn't for a lack of trying because, remember, in those days it was an underpass. You went mm -hmm. underneath the railroad tracks and the semi got stuck in there and had to be rescued. Uh, there was a lot of danger over there. And, of course, 71 days without our bridge and uh, 14,000 acres in the fabulous flooded. Let's talk about Jim Scott because he ha he was convicted of this crime, but this was not his first brush with the law. And that's why people were saying, hmm, interesting that he, not known as one of our great, like my mother sandbagged all of 93. She was out there, you know, working. She was just at QU. She wasn't down on the levee, but I mean, she worked hard every day sandbagging. And so people saw Jim Scott and said, mm, not quite the public citizen number one. And then Jack Freiburg said, alone, no safety procedures would ever allow anybody working down there to be alone. And talk a little bit about Jim Scott's history, because he had, he was, that was not his first brush with the law. Or with our, or with causing, Missouri actually has this criminal offense causing a catastrophe. That was what he was convicted of. We don't have that in Illinois. Uh, but it certainly worked in that circumstance. And he's the uh, only one who's ever been convicted under that statute. As far as that's right. Uh, but he and his brother burned down Webster School. If our listeners can remember that there was a school there at 12th and Main, the, now a lot used, I think, for junior high recreation. Uh, and that's when they were just kids, but he's had other arsons and, and a long criminal record. And, of course, yeah, him being on the scene there immediately, all the law enforcement people in Quincy wanted to talk to him. Okay, so July 16th, 8.22 p.m., the, this happens, and of course, we can talk about some other aspects of that later on, but let's stay on the, on the criminal aspect of it. Now, here we are, what is it, 30, what are we? This 30, summer, it'll be 30 years. 30 years, okay. 
So 30 years later, this documentary comes out. And um, what is the purpose of this documentary? Well, I think that uh, Adam Pitlick, who wrote a book on him that was published in 2007, is basically the flag bearer for Jim uh, Scott to get out, that he is, in fact, innocent and has kept in touch with him all this time, um, both interviewing his mother and interviewing Jim Scott, along with Chuck and Rodney Hart and Norman Hare. Um, and Norman Hare, of course, with the Flood Protection District. Rodney Hart, a noted, at the time, reporter for the Quincy Herald Wig. And, and all of them were kind of putting together the, the other side of the story as opposed to... Uh, Adam Pitlick's uh, innocent side. So Adam Pitlick is contending that Jim Scott was not guilty of this crime and basically was just railroaded because he was a bad guy to begin with and happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. There are people who say it wasn't man-made, it wasn't caused by somebody deliberately doing it, that it was so close to breaking that why wasn't a natural cause just automatically thought of, and yet such yeoman effort had been made, is that why it's hard for you to believe that Mother Nature did it rather than Jim Scott, well, Jack Schreiber? There's, there's a hydrologist that they interview quite extensively uh, in this documentary that talks about it would have broken anyway. Um, and, but his argument for me, um, if if Scott was anywhere near there alone, which like I said, just totally does not make any sense. I mean, he's the wrong guy at the right place. And because of the vulnerability of that point, I just think Scott saw the opportunity to make himself a national figure in the process there. And and it also there's a, a you know, the theory that he did this to to keep his girlfriend, uh, she was working, I think, at the, was it the Mississippi Grill she was working at over there? But he she didn't was, want her to get back to and, Illinois. And he didn't want her to get back in Illinois so he could party, which is uh, which is another, uh, I mean, that's a rather weak uh, reason to go ahead and, and flood 14,000 acres and do consequential, huge consequential damage to this entire area. To put this in perspective, Mary, as you recall, there's no bridge between St. Louis and Burlington, Iowa, except Bayview Bridge. And we know if the levee goes down on that side of the river, the approach is innovated, and now we're completely cut off. So thousands of people are making millions of sandbags and sending them across the river. And we've got ABC, NBC, CBS, and all lined up at the sandbag site telling think, this story nationally. I, of course, I think Harry Smith stayed here for like all Harry's oh, yeah. the best reporter of any. Yeah. He really did a great job uh, in telling the story. He, he worked very hard at that. But, but here's these people out there, and they're not trying to save their own house. We're all up here on top of a 100-foot limestone bluff. They're just wanting to help friends, neighbors, people they don't even know. So it was all that effort. And we actually thought, I mean, when we were interviewed there that night before, Norman Hare thought we were going to be okay at the break point. We were focused that day on Durgan's Creek, further north of there. That was going to be the trouble spot. And that's probably why no one was around when Scott was there. Uh, but in any event, if you put it in the context of this Herculean, heroic effort by people, people came in from all over to 
to try to help and do the right thing, and then we lose it because of, you know, somebody's sick compulsion or whatever. Uh, obviously, and, and, you know, Judge Clayton, he went into depth at, at sentencing, and, you know, he, you couldn't have found a better jurist and more representative of uh, his community, but also, you know, going to do the right thing uh, legally. Uh, so anyway, I, of course, he's retired now, but I have great faith in him, and uh, I think it was the right result. And I didn't see anything in this documentary other than Scott himself saying he didn't do it. I've always understood that he confessed to it 30 years ago. Uh, you know, there's a lot of guys in jail that said they didn't do it. Uh, but other than that, I don't know what evidence he has. Well, it's it's interesting because, like you said, the only person ever convicted of creating a catastrophe, which exists in Missouri but not Illinois, uh, taking into account the economic impact, not to mention uh, the just the inconvenience. But Chuck, you're a lawyer. Jack Freiberg, you're not. Jack's got common sense. Chuck's a lawyer. <laughs> Uh, so I well, I didn't mean don't. to imply. I didn't mean to imply that you didn't have any common sense. I just mean that you I, have a credential behind I, you. As, as they say in geometry, I am not sure those are mutually exclusive sets. <laughs> a equals B equals C. A equals C. Okay, so Chuck, start with you, the legal point of view. Thirty years, you know. I mean, you're right. People kill each other and don't get thirty years. So. You mentioned, well, he has a propensity to perhaps do this again. Aren't you allowed to have a psychiatric examination that maybe your board of parole could say he's been cured? I mean, 30 years is a long time when you compare it to some other things. If he could be cured, that'd be great. I don't know that you can be, but if he could do it, that'd be fine. They could present that and whatever. But uh, I just wanted, and this doesn't come out in the documentary, people to understand there's another whole theory on why to incarcerate here, and it's the protection of society after someone has repeatedly been convicted of arson, starts a flood, has a career criminal, uh, just to protect the rest of society. He must have been excited when Airco went up, because if you want to make a fire, that's well, that, the pretty that, biggest fire. Well, that added have. another visual element to that to the catastrophe that nobody ever expected. Um, you know, one of the other things that I want to talk a well, little bit. What about bit, common sense, though? Is thirty years too much? I, I, well, the thing about him is, 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 is he, he's such a volatile ball of fire. You just don't know if you let him out what he's going to do. I mean, his track record up until now is to bring nothing but down, but destruction um, on this area. He was sentenced to life in prison, right? No, I. What was his sentence? I think it is life. I think it was is it life like in prison. Twenty years to life or something. I, I if I remember right, well, if it was right, twenty years to life, if, he would have been up for parole. I mean. Well, it, and I think if, if it said that he was um, up, he's going to be up for parole, and I'm not exactly sure when, but it's in the next couple three years, like uh, 2024, 2026, something like that. Well, if you get out, none of these terrible things that are being said about you can be attributed to me. <laughs> Well, Just in case you are volatile, but, I don't want it coming after me. But yeah. one of the things I think we need to talk about is uh, is not only the the, the the direct damage to the 14,000 acres, but more importantly, see, in insurance, if you, you have two types of, of uh, property coverage. One, you have the direct damage. So if a, if a tornado hits a hospital, Obviously, there's a lot of damage to the hospital that needs to be repaired. 
But there's also the indirect damage for that in that those people that would go into the hospital there would need to go to the hospital someplace else. So there's a bunch of people that need to be laid off. There are, you know, these revenues go from that hospital to someplace else. And base, and really, that's where the damage was. It was not in the direct damage to the, to the 14,000 acres and all the property that it damaged. It was, it was to the entire economic disruption that we had to For this entire days. area. Yeah. And see, that's what, when they have these cost-benefit ratios to see whether it's justified to, for instance, raise the levy in West Quincy, they only consider that 14,000 acres of beans and corn and discount tobacco and fuel over there. That's it. And, in fact, that critical infrastructure, as Jack says, protecting the entire city of Quincy and probably a 60-mile radius, we saw the impact. Uh, but, you know, in big picture with the flood, I'm, I have a very positive, you know, because of the way people responded, Quincy was portrayed. South Quincy held. So we've had hundreds of millions of dollars in investment down there now that they know we can handle a 500-year flood down there and still be on the river. So lots of good blessings have flown uh, from the flood. Well, that's for sure. I guess, you know, I didn't really remember the date, except I do know I was in the Hannibal theater production of the music man that year we closed before july 16th because every time i went down for a show i thought oh man i hope i get back but i do remember starting on uh, the night of july 17th i had a fold-out bed in my living room and i was housing a, f- a good friend of mine who worked at khqa i had to house her until the bridge got open again so it did impact everyone's life We've got to take a break at 9.36. Our conversation with Chuck Schultz and Jack Freiberg will continue. We're talking about the aftermath of the criminal activity of the flood of 93. Jim Scott is the focus of a documentary. A part of it claims his innocence. Other people say, oh, no, he did it. We're back. Talk Radio 930 WTAD. Best things happen during those commercial breaks. And uh, Jack Freiberg was present uh, 12 hours prior to the July 16th breach of the West Quincy levy. Chuck Schultz was the mayor on duty at the time. Uh, Jack was interviewed for a book about the breach. And uh, uh, Jack Freiberg, you know, you have no problem saying that um, you think it broke unnaturally. You think Jim Scott is guilty of breaking it, that it would have held, um, and that uh, his punishment, what you know, he needs to be in prison uh, probably for the rest of his life. But you fell victim to uh, a St. Louis reporter, right? The kind of, he didn't take your words out of context. He just didn't let you say, oh, that might be an exaggeration, right? No, you know, <laughs> I, I got I got a call, I think it was shortly after his trial. Um, it was before the Pitlick book was came out. And uh, this guy went ahead and asked me a series of questions about what it was like over there. You know, uh, you know, would you, would you? And one of the questions I'm, I, I remember him asking me was, "Were you ever alone over there?" Which my which my answer to that was absolutely not. But he also asked me about, uh, you know, what should happen to Jim Scott at that time, and uh, I was. 
still angry about that at that time, as many people were. And I just said off the top of my head, um, you know, I think he should be hung from the Bayview Bridge and let the birds have at him. Well, the reporter immediately said, thank you very much, Mr. Freiberg, and hung up. And I ended up in the Adam Pitlick book with that quote, which obviously that's an exaggeration of the way that I felt. But the whole point being is, is I think there were a lot of people here who'd had their lives disrupted in such a way that they really were mad about this whole thing. When this happened, I mean, uh, I was just a child of 33. Uh, you know, uh, you know what's interesting about this? I was not working as a news reporter. Oh, really? I have had several brushes with being fired at WTAD. And uh, at this moment, I was on my fired status of WTAD. I did not directly cover the flood of 93. You probably don't remember that, except Chuck probably says, yeah, I don't remember Mary Griffith nagging me all the time for information. (laughs) Believe it or not... I was working for the Girl Scouts. Oh yeah, I remember at this yeah, well, time. I remember your stint as a Girl yeah, Scout. Yeah, I was a Girl Scout executive at this time, and they called. A lot of people were calling me. WGEM had called me, and I said, "You know what? I don't want to stand on a water-sogged levee. I don't want. I, I was. I hate to say it, but I was so happy that I was not part of that. Mm. Now, most people would say, "Well, that's the news reporter's big." chance to, you know, maybe make national news or do this. But I just, it was exhausting. And so hats off to the media core, because it's exhausting locally. It's exhausting when you come from New York, because as Chuck would say, people were calling Quincy going, oh my God, they're sandbagging at QU at 18th and College. How high is the river? You know, they're out of context. Well, you know, but, that can be taken very scary, you but know. But see, the sandbagging itself, and I don't care whether you were working at QU or you were working on the levees themselves, it was hot. Oh, yeah. It was, it was steamy. Um, it I was had a, time to do it because I wasn't. So it was inspirational. You know, the, uh, Dad would be filling a bag and Mom tying it off and... and Juniors walking around giving out water, and our, we had seniors making sandwiches, and it was amazingly efficient. You know, when we, we first started, I called Kenny Cantrell with uh, Street and Bridge and said, how many bags have we got right now? And it's about 10,000. I said, why don't you take like half of them out to QU? I'm going to call Father Jim, and we'll use that. I'm going to ask for some volunteers. And then hang back with 5,000. 5, well, at the height of it out there, these Chinook helicopters would drop in 100,000 bags at a time. We had 16 of these IDOT trucks, which were like 14 ton. They're going down to Fall Creek to get sand and coming back and dumping it on that site. And by, they'd go back to get the next load. By the time they came back in an hour, people were banging their shovels wanting more sand. They were so productive. We were sending them all over. Well, the family unit was the kids would hold the bag open. Mom would shovel and Dad would throw the bag, and uh, we had, you know at uh, the end of the day you were where no matter where you were you were dirty, sweaty, and your back was sore, and it was true for almost everybody. And yet we were willing to do that for other people. And I do remember, my mother and I never worked together, but my mother did a shift every day at QU, and I did a shift almost every day at QU, and your fingers would hurt so much. Now, I couldn't throw bags, 
Um, and I mostly did tying. And that tying, you think, well, that's an easy job. And compared to the rest of them, I guess it was. But your fingers, no matter how much you tried to wear gloves, your fingers would just kill you. And my mother would laugh. She said, no, I just sit there on my throne and they bring me sandbags and I tie them up and then they take them away. She said, I'm not, I can't, I'm not strong enough to haul it. I'm not strong enough to shovel it, but I can sure tie with the best of them. And it did. It took everybody. It took everybody. And I would thank people and they'd say, no, thank you. We want the, you know, they couldn't go down in a drainage district or out on levee, but there they could come with their family, whatever. We had softball teams that instead of playing each other would see who could make the most sandbags, you know, uh, city buses. Together. I remember after we lost uh, Indian Graves, coming back into town somewhat discouraged, and uh, about like 12th and Spruce, there are two little girls, probably 10-year-olds, each had a shovel, and they are waiting for the city bus to take them to the sandbagging site. And I thought, man can't quit now yeah you're almost crying and i do remember i will tell you that i did get disheartened when we lost the uh, levy that was protecting basf american cyanamid i in my mind i was working to protect my friends that worked over there and to protect their livelihoods and i remember i was done with my shift and i was driving home and i turned on the radio and it said that they had lost that levy and I just remember being so defeated, feeling so defeated, the emotions. And you talk about this one man, for whatever his reason was, created this catastrophe. He's been convicted of it. It really impacted people so deeply and so emotionally. But if there is good, and we've talked about the good that's come out of it, our communities did hang together. Well, Scott Peck, who is a very famous psychiatrist and wrote numerous books, one of them being The Road Less Traveled, talks about that phenomenon. Um, Because when you go on certain types of retreats, um, Curcio is a good example of that, you come together in such a way that you form community. And by that, I mean a lot of your differences fall aside and you work together as a, as a common unit. Well, the only time that that happens naturally in the world is during the time of catastrophe. That's and, interesting. Uh, bec- and, and the flood of 93 here locally was the only time in my life when it was such a a unifying catastrophic event that I saw the community come together. That's here. that's what it was, and and you know we didn't experience World War II like our parents' generation. No, uh, where every, if you weren't fighting, you were in a defense plant, or you were, had your victory garden, or you were doing night watch. Every unified effort, as you said, but we had that in '93 as we was, all came together. And, and different it was, states, it was, you know. You'd it was see, really a beautiful thing. Well, you'd see a physician making bags next to a factory worker, and, and it was. It was a what, feeling of one goal that we all were pulling in the same direction. What a beautiful class leveler. Really, yeah. It, 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 everybody was in it together, and as we were saying before with Mary, they weren't trying to save their own house. Uh, they just wanted to do the right thing and help their neighbors. I have a good friend who's a retired sociology professor at Bielefeld University. Uh, he lives over in our sister city of, uh, near Hereford. And he has this theory on this because he says, you know, if you study catastrophe in, say, an equatorial region, it's not an organized response like that. In the northern climates, 
throughout history, you had to save up at the harvest to make it through the winter and get organized and all band together and so forth. And he was so impressed with the flood of 93. He's been here to visit several times. But he said, you know, not everybody reacts that way. Uh, and even like in America, on the Gulf, New Orleans, whatever, uh, it was not the response we had up here, which was so impressive. And as mayor, I got to, for years, that would be people's reference points. Jim Mentesti and I would be out talking to a prospect. Oh, yeah, Quincy, I saw that on the flood. That's your workforce. That's why you got to invest here, dedicated, dependable people. So it was a great ad advertisement for our community, uh, ultimately. Well, ultimately, don't you think that there was a general sense of community pride at that time? Absolutely. That, that, well, we, that we all moments, should be proud of? When Precious Moments makes a special sandbagging uh, Precious Moments figurine, you know you've made it. I mean, when when there is, you know, I have one, and I have one. My mother, my dad gave my mother one. You know, when you have a precious moments figurine for the flood of '93 in Quincy, Illinois, a precious moments figurine of she's bagging sand and he's bagging sand, you know you've made it. You're an insurance guy, so we talked about the loss. You know, the loss of the Airco and the loss of the Mississippi Grill and you know everything else, the farmland loss that year and maybe a year later. But did they ever put a total? loss on the economy, not just the physical, like you said, Jack, from an insurance point, what got what got burned or what got damaged, but long term, how much was lost? Can you, re is I, there ever a figure you, that was a, a I have never, that? I have never seen any numbers on this. I, I have not either. On, on the indirect loss side of it. But to give you an example, um, in 93, um, uh, Hannibal Regional Hospital had just built that new hospital. And Larry Swearingen, um, who was CEO of Blessing at the time, told me because of that turndown there that uh, Blessing's revenues were down and Hannibal Regionals were up by almost the, the exact dollar sure. that they were down. Sure. And it was all because of the shift of the river where those those services, those hospital services, had to go somewhere. So does Hannibal Regional Hospital have a Jim Scott Award for economic <laughs> I, I, I have no idea, but I'm, I'm just where saying. Where do you think, after 71 days of not having a bridge, and we were going to roll back, the barricade and welcome the first family back. I got a key to the city for him. And I said, out of curiosity, what's the first place you're going to go to? Gem City Pizza. Sure. Sure. They'd been denied <laughs> for 71 days. It was time for a Jeff special. My God. Then they he were going to go to the grocery store. It's called McLean's Rule. Yeah. <laughs> he does deserve life in prison. <laughs> I, I couldn't have so, a Jeff City pizza for 71 days. That is so, criminal. That is we, criminal. So then we had our fourth quarter retail with an open bridge. And, you know, not only did we do great with pent-up demand locally, but think about it. In the next 12 months, how much plywood and drywall and carpet, and guess what happened? Home Depot pops up on the radar screen. We're, we, you know, it's always tough for Quincy because we're not a standard metropolitan statistical area, less than 50,000. But they say, look at what they're spending over there. And that was their first rural store. They were totally urban before that. And then what happens? You get Lowe's and Menards and... You know, Super Walmart. And it's amazing and, they all do uh, as well as they do here. Yeah, uh, the, and, and they're going to target. We'll just draw that many more. Right. And that's our food and beverage tax uh, 
doing its work, drawing people into Quincy. Well, now, if I'm Jim Scott and I'm listening to the podcast, I want to be let out of prison. I ended up doing a good thing for the community. Well, he should apply for <laughs> parole and, like you say, try to get some uh, help. Uh, well, it is, you know, as you said, it's the intangible thing that you can never predict what is going to happen. Uh, my dad always used to say, character is not built when times are good. Character is built when times are tough. We responded just out of our natural instinct to respond. Oh, sure, Mayor Chuck Schultz was asking us to help. Oh, sure, people were putting I, out pleas. But you can ask a lot of people to help about a lot of things, but to show up spontaneously for backbreaking labor, that shows character. Yeah. That, should I tell her about Arkansas, the guy I was telling you about? Sure, the other sure, sure. So the, so the levee breaks at night. We had four trucks over there. We'd said, go west, go away, don't try to come back across. So we, no, we had four that did that. We had one guy that just came across anyway. And anyway, and then we had a truck break down on I-70. We sent a guy down there to get the guy because he's going to Girl Scout camp with his daughter the next morning. It was what you know. I'm in my office at City Hall. It's like 2 a.m. Lane Evans is in there, uh, our tent house, and I called Paul Simon, who fortunately keeps his cell phone by his bed. He used to serve in the house with Les Aspen, who is now under Clinton's Secretary of Defense. So Paul says, let me see what I can do. The next thing you know, you hear this helicopter is setting down in the parking lot outside City Hall. And here comes this general with about three guys on either side. And I'm like, whoa, uh, would you like a cup of coffee, general? And he's completely upset. Uh, and he wants to know. I, they had called me and said, give me one name and one cell phone. We only had like three bag phones. And I gave him Gary Sparks, who was a flood coordinator. And uh, this general says, all I know is, some SOB named Sparks woke up to Secretary of Defense, and I've had my butt chewed out from one side to the other. And we go, what's going And I'm like, hey, Sparky jumps up higher than Michael Jordan says, I didn't call anybody. Uh, but this guy turned out to be a great guy, and it was extremely helpful, but it was just kind of an odd way to meet. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's a, you're in the middle of a disaster here. You're not messing around. Uh, and, you know, uh, really one of the main reasons President Clinton came here the day after his last State of the Union was because what he did to help us in 93, setting up that boat shuttle and deploying whatever means were necessary, you know, had Secretary of Transportation here and so forth, uh, Gave me a couple of phone calls there. Uh, I've told that story where we came home from the sandbag site and hit the answering machine. Some of our listeners can remember answering machines. And about the third one in, after like Jake's soccer game canceled again, rain out, is this is the White House Secure Voice phone operator calling for Mayor Schultz, president, which to speak with you immediately. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. That's like 1130 at night, bro. And so I get a couple more. This is the White House calling back. And so, you know, I, I dial the phone. And the first thing I get is, what's your access code? And I said, ma'am, I don't have an access code, but I'm returning the president's call. And she, she didn't believe me. And I tried to explain that we're in the middle of a natural disaster in the upper Midwest here. And, and she's like, no, yeah. And I said, bear with me. I'm going to play the answering machine. So after that, like the third message comes, and she completely, next time, within an instant, I get this Air Force One, please hold for the president. Like, Mary, I'm still get problem now, you know, it's <laughs> So fortunately I have all my notes of when I called see I called Paul Simon earlier in the day. I said, We gotta get this expedited. 
IDOT's okay, MoDOT's okay, but this Corps of Engineers, they want to do a study. This was to get the boat shuttle. And he says, well, I, I'm going to be in Chicago with the president. I'm going to try to, I'll try to talk to him. I didn't know he was going to ride back with him. Because after I gave the president our list of what we needed, I'm ready to get off the phone. And he's like, well, don't hang up. Your buddy wants to talk to you. And Paul, you know, he had, he had a voice like Freiburg, you know, really good radio voice. Chalk. And I said, yes, Paul. He said, did I really get you this time or what? And I said, what, what do you mean, Paul? He said, well, that guy, doesn't he do a great Bill Clinton imitation? <laughs> I said, please tell me that was the president. And he said, oh, and so that's like midnight. And at 7 a.m., Sparky's knocking on my door. We got a meeting with the Corps of Engineers. They expedited. We started it the next day. I tell you what, we've been reminiscing with Chuck Schultz, who you just heard talking, and Jack Freiberg. They were there July 16th of uh, 1993 when the uh, flood to West Quincy, when the West Quincy levee broke. Thank you for sharing your stories today. And don't forget, every third Friday, these guys are back, and we love having them on the Mary Griffith Show.